This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. As we are getting into my rights, 1040 is your time right here on VFM 88.1. Hashtag area code. We are getting into my rights. And Ked and Kaylin Dead now graduated with an LLB from University of the Witwatersand right here. VFM 88.1 in 2007. Um, she completed two years of articles and admitted as an attorney at a, and a notary public in 2010. In 2013, she was admitted as a conve- conveyancer. Ooh, child. And she's been a director at Vits Incorporated since 2006. She practiced civil litigation, conve- conveyancing property and commercial law since 2008. Good morning, Kaylin. Hi there, how are you? We are all fantastic. We're just excited about uh, this chat mm-hmm. that we're having this morning. Property law. When looking for property, is it mandatory to get an estate agent? So it's not mandatory. Um, there's nothing that says that you have to. It is advisable to, though, because um, it comes with a measure of accountability. So estate agents are obliged to do some level of homework into the person that's selling the property uh, before putting it on the market and before marketing it. So at least if you know, you know, when you buy the property through an estate agent, that there's some sort of due diligence that has gone into that person. It's not just a it's usually not a, a con artist or a scam or, or something like that, which is where the risk is when you try to do it privately. Um, unfortunately, it happens all too often where, you know, you, you meet someone and they, they tell you they own the property and then they actually don't and you end up paying the money. So to involve an estate agent just really assists both parties to ensure um, it, it minimizes that risk. It minimizes a lot of risk in that sense because they will they will go out and they will feature the seller and they will ensure that they own the property and they will also um, inspect the condition of the property and things like that. And they're held accountable through the estate agents board. Um, so it just introduces the safeguards for both of the parties, uh, which is why not mandatory, but definitely recommended in that sense. Okay, Lynn, you're just mentioning um, the importance of having an estate agent and uh, maybe let's look at some of the costs that one should be aware of other than the actual house price because uh, um, using an estate, um, you get charged for it. So what are some of the hidden costs, maybe if I may put it that way, um, in inverted commas, that are associated with purchasing a house outside of the actual house price? Sure. Okay. So generally, it would be the seller that would appoint the estate agent to, to market their property. Um, and so where that happens, the, the seller's a commission would then be for the account of the seller. So it would be deducted from the purchase price that the purchaser would pay. Um, and, and that amount would then be paid to the uh, agent effectively by the seller. So that wouldn't even necessarily be a cost for the purchaser's account, but it would afford them that protection. The costs that are for the purchaser's account would be the transfer duty that is payable to SARS. Um, any purchase price below 1 million rand would be exempt from transfer duty. So if you buy a property that's less uh, than a million rand, you wouldn't be paying that transfer duty to SARS. For anything above a million rand, it works on a sliding scale uh, according to the value of the property. So if the fair value of the property is more than a million rand, there's a sliding scale percentage that you would have to pay to SARS. And that, that is the calculation for that is accessible on their website. Um, so that would be for the purchaser's account. The other costs for the purchasers would be the conveyancing account, uh, the, the conveyancing costs that would be payable for the transferring attorney to actually attend to that transfer process. It's something that can only be done 
by a conveyancer. Um, so for people that are making use of a private sale uh, who are not aware of that, that would be a red flag. So if, if you approach someone to buy their property and they say, you know, don't worry, just pay me the money and I'll sort it out, and you don't actually then go meet with an attorney, that should be a red flag because a property transfer can only be done by a conveyancer and a conveyancer has to be an admitted attorney. And uh, because it is a, a process that is handled by a professional, um, there are obviously the costs that are involved and that is generally for the purchaser's account as well. Uh, and there are sort of various other nominal admin fees and things that, that a purchaser may be liable, but those are the two big ones for the purchaser. The transfer duty to SARS and the conveyancing costs um, that are payable uh, to the to the conveyancer. Mm. Now, Kaylin, when one um, is negotiating a proper uh, negotiating a deposit towards a house, does one offer a random number, or is there a set percentage to it? So there isn't a specific amount that um, that one is obliged to pay. Uh, I'll tell you the two reasons that people do usually agree. Um, on a deposit, the rule of thumb is 10%, but it's negotiable. And uh, and as I say, the two reasons that people usually ask for deposits are firstly a show of good faith, sort of like put your money where your mouth is. Um, show me that you're not wasting my time and messing me around by actually putting up some sort of cash as a show. Uh, and then the second reason is affordability. Uh, it's not so easy to get a 100% bond from the bank these days. And generally, the, the bank would uh, insist that you put up some sort of cash deposit as well, just to assist you with the affordability for, for paying off the bond, if you are getting a bond. So those are generally the two reasons why people would insist on a, on a deposit. Show me that you're serious, you're not wasting my time, you're not just taking a chance. Um, so, so put that down as a show of good faith. And then, as I say, the banks usually insist as well. And no set amount, but generally about 10%. Yeah. That sounds that sounds about good, hey. Yeah. Um, now I don't know if you've been yeah, following um, the Blade River Walk story. Um, it, it's it's something that's been happening when it's in a state, and this past weekend they required residents to pay an entrance fee of two hundred and fifty rand each. Now I'm guessing that maybe the reason behind this is because they also have a private beach inside, which is obviously made, but it is something worth going and having a look at. You know, um, is there a clause that allows them to do so randomly? Because I remember while having this conversation, um, Zakes as well also said that um, when he he had to sleep over at a friend's place. He had to pay a hundred rand. What constitutes these rights behind the two hundred and fifty and the hundred rand for the sleepover? So obviously, quite a contentious issue, um, and obviously hotly debated on both sides. Uh, you know, you can understand it, I suppose, from the property owner's point of view, in the sense that this is a, is a massive investment for everybody. You need to ensure that that the value in that investment is retained. You don't want people to be, you know, spending money on buying these units and, and the place is degraded or, or whatever the, the case may be. And maybe also to some extent for the, the maintenance of the facilities and things like that, maybe it's warranted. But by the other, you know, token, you can also understand the people that have now bought into this um, under certain terms and conditions and now suddenly find that that's, you know, changed. Uh, and to go from 100 to, 100 to 250 is maybe quite onerous, I suppose. So both sides, you know, perhaps equal merit. Um, 
But I think when, when faced with things like this, there's two things that are important. Obviously, firstly, you need to have substantive reasons for doing it. So there, there needs to be fair and reasonable and justifiable um, reasons for imposing a, a potentially onerous penalty on people or, or admin fee. Uh, and there also has to be proper procedure. So, so where they maybe have good reasons for doing so, one has to look at whether they follow correct procedure or fair procedure in doing so, which obviously entails giving both opportunities the, the, the right to be heard, to let it be debated, to give proper notice of meetings where it's going to be discussed, to have a thorough debate about it beforehand, to consider alternative measures if possible. All these kinds of due processes, it's just important that it, you know, that, that be implemented um, before the decision is ultimately made. Uh, and, and so where you can tick both of those boxes and the outcome of due process and fair reason is, is it's a good idea, then, you know, I suppose there's always the courts are available to, to have that set aside, which I think is where, they, where they're trying to head, to, to CSOS, mm. um, which is the ombudsman, um, to, to see if, if it's sustainable. Um, 10.49 is the time this morning, Joburg. You tune into Area Code and we're hanging out with Zex Twala and Pritingwenya and we're in the middle of my rights. We're chatting with Caitlin, um, Caitlin Dedna, who is a property lawyer and she's explaining us everything we need to know about property. Now, Caitlin, when the president has signed into law the Property um, Practitioners Act, what exactly does that law entail and uh, do we know when that is said to come into effect? As I understand, they're still working on the regulations. I don't think the entire thing has come into effect yet. Uh, it goes back to what I was saying before about um, estate agents and anyone else who is defined as a, as a property practitioner, so brokers and, and you know people on the finance side and things like that, just to provide a regulatory framework uh, for, for people in that industry to ensure that there isn't any unscrupulous behaviors, to ensure that they are regulated and, and held accountable. Um, because in many instances they're receiving, in many cases, for example, a sale agreement will say that that deposit that we discussed must be paid to the estate agent uh, into their trust account. So when you are receiving and handling other people's trust money, there needs to be accountability. Um, and so there was only a small sector of that industry that was covered previously by legislation. And the intention of this act is to extend that um, to really sort of protect the consumer. Uh, so it's just a, a drive to ensure that the entire industry and anyone who falls within the definition of that industry is held accountable, that there are regulations and rules uh, that they must uh, be held to, to ensure that, that the, the consumer uh, and the public is protected. So just to wrap it up, and we're looking at um, the eviction letter, you know, um, there's a lot that is uh, surrounding eviction letters. Sometimes you get um, kicked out immediately, and, you know, there's a lot of questions around it. Now, what warrants an an eviction letter, and how many days does one actually have or is required to leave the premises? So when it comes to leases, the first place to to start is uh, the agreement, is the lease agreement between the parties. That's always... Um, you know, we, we start there, which is why it's it's so imperative to actually have a written lease agreement in place. Uh, it always feels unnecessary until it's necessary, unfortunately. Uh, and, and so most lease agreements will stipulate in there, if you fail to pay your rent, then you are in breach. Um, you, you've, you've broken your obligations in terms of the contract. Uh, and where that happens, generally, the landlord is then required to give you a letter or a notice to say, fix your breach. So you haven't paid, 
um, and you are in breach of your obligations, I'm giving you seven days, 10 days, two weeks. It depends on what's agreed. I, I suppose one to two weeks is generally considered fair um, to both sides. So, you know, fix that breach, um, pay what you owe, otherwise there will be consequences. So the tenant should be afforded that opportunity, firstly, to actually take steps to, 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 uh, to bring their obligations, to bring their payments up to date. If they fail then to make that payment within that week or two week period, um, then the landlord is entitled at that stage to cancel the lease. Uh, so now, so, so let's say that, you know, that's what occurs. Now there is no lease essentially, which means that the tenant has no legal right to remain in the property. Um, the landlord is not allowed to take the law into his own hands in that event. He cannot, you know, take the change the locks, take the door off, send around some people with baseball bats or things like that. That that is all unlawful. Um, so what the landlord needs to do is then follow the court process in terms of the Prevention of Illegal Eviction Act and uh, and obtain a court order to have the tenant evicted. So. You know, so so in terms of that, the lease, yes, there is notice uh, that's provided, and it depends what what is stipulated in terms of that. But where the tenant still remains in the property um, and doesn't leave the property, even though the lease has been cancelled and the tenant is not uh, entitled to remain in there, the landlord can only actually effect the eviction under the supervision of the court. And the court will set the time periods that the tenant must leave and will have consideration to all of the factors um, involved. Are there children? Are there elderly people, disabled people, et cetera? Uh, and then make a, a determination as to as to when that, you know, under compelling circumstances. Uh, it's, not, it's not a free-for-all situation either. Uh, and the tenant would be obliged to prove to the court why the indulgence should be granted. Um, but if those circumstances exist, and the tenant is able to show that they exist, then the court would, you know, um, provide some sort of indulgence, another month maybe, or whatever the the case may be. Um, so, so yes, I, I suppose the guiding principle here is is reasonableness. You know, yes, it's difficult for the landlord where you you have a situation with a tenant that's not paying, and the landlord obviously has his own obligations that that he must meet as well. But uh, you know, nine times out of ten. <laughs> the tenant finds themselves in this position for a reason as well. Um, and, and I suppose parties must be fair to each other. Mm. Now, Caitlin, from top of your head, five things yeah. one needs to look out for when purchasing property. Okay. So this is a very good, a very good question. And, you know, for me, um, for me, the, the message that I would like to, to send to people more than anything is if you approach someone to purchase their property, do not pay them any money until you have at least asked an attorney just to check that that person is indeed the true and lawful owner of that property. Uh, because unfortunately, this happens time and time again where someone will pay money and it turns out that the person that they paid the money to is not even the owner of that property. So, you know, I understand it might be intimidating or, or whatever, or expensive, maybe expensive, maybe not expensive, I don't know. But for me, the most important thing is do not pay anybody any money until there's been some sort of due diligence process. And, you know, anyone, any member of the public can walk into the deeds office and they will assist with the property search to confirm, uh, you know, who, who the owner of that property is. So that for me is is very important, is, is just make sure 
uh, just do a bit of homework, do a bit of due diligence, especially before paying any money. Um, so that would be number one. Number two, obviously, is also the condition of the property. Uh, uh, a seller is not entitled to conceal anything. Um, so that, that would be obviously fraud. But there is then also the, the, the principle of footstool, which means you buy the property as is. So where the seller can prove, well, he didn't know, uh, you know, then you can't necessarily always hold him accountable. So as a purchaser, it's important to take, uh, to do a, a thorough inspection of the property. Where possible, take someone who has some sort of knowledge on, on construction or who has been a homeowner before and knows what to look out for, things like damp or, you know, broken this or broken that or, or whatever the case is. Um, so as a purchaser, just to do some sort of due diligence regarding the condition of the property. Um, and then I suppose just to have an understanding of the costs that are involved. Uh, as a purchaser, my apologies, one of the costs that I forgot, if you intend to get a bond from a bank, you would be responsible for the bond registration costs as well. Um, so that's a separate, that's an entirely separate process that's handled by the bank and their attorneys and the purchaser, if they are taking finance from the bank, would be liable for those bond registration costs as well. So there's another part of the of the due diligence and the homework that that one should do before um, committing themselves to to a purchase because it is you know it's an expensive and um, a process and and uh, a commitment. So just to understand the the costs that are involved, and then to have a look at things like homeowners association rules. You know, as you mentioned that case in Pretoria. Um, that's also part of the due diligence, part of the homework. If you're buying into a sectional title complex, ask to see the rules of the body corporate. Ask to see the latest audited financial statements of the body corporate so you can ensure it's not bankrupt. So you can ensure the bank, the body corporate is not in debt, that it doesn't have, uh, you know, 10 years worth of maintenance to be done, which you are going to have to finance the, the day after you move in. Uh, so just to do a thorough ask the questions, ask the questions, um, whatever needs to be asked, do the homework, do the due diligence, because the consequences might not be pleasant if you don't. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's absolutely amazing to have you on the show because you're explaining to us things that we need to know when it comes to property Mm. before we even fall prey into scams. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, don't be shy either. Um, Just pick up the phone, make contact with the attorney, uh, and just, as I say, ask the questions, do the homework, protect yourself, uh, because nobody else is unfortunately going to do it for you. Mm. And that's our purpose as well. You know, that, that is, that's, that's what we are here as attorneys, as conveyances. That is what we do every day. Um, so please get in touch, ask the questions, and, and let's just go into this with our eyes open. Thank you very much, Kaylin, for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1. Or streams via www.varfm.co.za.